Our scripture for today is John 16, 16 through 24. A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father, so they were saying, What does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, Is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying, A little while, and you will not see me. And again a little while, and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish. For joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice. And no one will take your joy from you. And that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. It's, uh, it's, it's so nice to be with you guys this morning. Um, if, if we didn't meet on the way in, my name is Cole. Uh, my wife and I, Chloe and I, we, we moved to uh, Des Moines about six years ago to plant a gospel-centered Acts 29 church in, in Des Moines. And so um, we, we love this church deeply, deeply, deeply. I, I know it's probably weird hearing that from somebody that you don't know. Um, but 40 miles away in, uh, in Des Moines, Iowa, is a, is a small church that has a total church crush on Sacred Mission. We really do have our eyeballs on you. We're learning from you guys. We're watching you guys. Uh, a year ago, uh, while I was taking my first sabbatical after planting Frontier Church, uh, Chloe and I made sure to mark one of the Sundays to come and worship with, uh, with Sacred Mission. And it was one of, those, one of those mornings where we were like, whoa. We're, we're home, like we, we feel home, That you know, gospel-centered, passionate about Jesus, even le- the liturgical movement. It, uh, it meant so much to us that since then, any time one of our key leaders has taken a sabbatical um, over in Des Moines or, you know, taken a Sunday off or whatever it is, we always try to, to say, hey, go, go worship at, uh, at Sacred Mission. So if you, um, if, you, if you ever find yourself in Des Moines worshiping with us on a Sunday morning and you're like, wow, this feels a lot like Sacred mission it's probably because we're sending spies over here <laughs> and uh, and stealing from you guys and and putting that to work over there in Des Moines Iowa but beyond just loving you guys and loving sacred mission uh, my, my wife and I we just we just think the world of the Kimberly family we we love them deeply not only are we a, a part of the same network but uh, a couple years ago the first time that I ever met Tim was we actually assessed together um, at Acts 29 for for church planting which 
which means that before I ever met Tim or Patty, um, we heard about Tim and Patty. I remember like a couple of weeks leading up to that Acts 29 assessment, it felt like everybody we talked to from Acts 29 was like, oh, you, 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 get, to, you get to assess with Tim and Patty? They're the best, man. And uh, one, one couple uh, was even like, or one leader was even like, bro, I promise you, once you spend some time with the Kimberleys, you're going to want to move to Collins to plant that church with them. And I was like, dude, no, I'm, I'm planting a church in, in Des Moines, Iowa. I don't want to move to Collins. And uh, I still remember hearing Tim and, and Patty give their vision for sacred mission at Acts 29 assessment. And I still remember feeling it well up in my heart like, oh my gosh, I want to move to Collins. <laughs> And so we just, we love you, man. And we just, we think the world of you. And so when, when Paul talks about how he experiences sorrow, yet always rejoicing, that's just kind of how I feel getting to be with you guys this morning. So let me pray, and then we'll jump into John 16. Heavenly Father, We just need you to send your Holy Spirit this morning in a special outpouring so that our hearts would really believe Psalm 16, verse 11, that you make known to us the path of life and in your presence is fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Lord, I pray that you would give us the ability to turn our eyes towards King Jesus and to truly believe that because of his sacrifice on our behalf, because of the righteousness that only Jesus provides, to truly believe that joy is possible. And not only is it possible, it's promised by you to be a joy that no one can take away from us. No one can take it away. So Lord, as surely as King Jesus dwells within us, so surely this joy is also within us, whether or not we are ignorant or cognizant of it. And so just wake us up this morning. Wake us up and give us good news through King Jesus. So it's in his precious name that we pray. Amen. Um, so I... I I coach wrestling in, in the Des Moines area. I, I'm, a, I'm a high school wrestling coach. And so over these past couple of years of coaching wrestling, um, I think the Lord has just been teaching me slowly um, why it is that Israel in the Old Testament means he who wrestles with God. Like when you're coaching wrestling and you see all that goes into the sport and you see exactly what it feels like to wrestle with somebody, to be hand-to-hand -hand with somebody, like experiencing that, you're like, oh, I, I'm beginning to see why it, like Israel means he who wrestles with God. I mean, there's so many reasons why wrestling imitates our relationship with God. I think one of the reasons why is because there's a lot, but I think one of the reasons is because there, there are so many tears in the sport of wrestling. Um, from the wrestlers, but even sometimes as a coach, uh, a couple weeks ago was the first high school practice, and I woke up early like one of the next days, and I swear to you, after wrestling, I was like crawling into the living room, just like, oh my goodness, I sat down on the couch early in the morning, and Chloe was like, are, are you okay? What hurts? 
and I was like, sweetheart, it's like my, I can't move my arm because of my shoulder. I've got bruises like all up and down my legs. There's a weird bump on my toe right now. I've got mat burns all over my, all over my knees and my rib is out of place. It's like, this is what it's like to be a wrestling coach over 30s. Like just so many tears in this sport from me, but also from the perspective of the wrestlers. A couple, a couple of years ago, um, I had this wrestler who all he wanted to accomplish and achieve with his, with his life, his, his big goal in life was to be a high school state champion. And there's a lot that goes into this in the state of Iowa, right? Years and years and years of grueling, difficult wrestling practice, years and years and years of tears, years and years of cutting weight, all of that tough stuff. This could put his whole heart and soul into trying to achieve this goal of being a high school state champ. And a couple of years ago, he got so close to it, made it all the way to state, made it all the way to the state semifinals, was in the middle of a tough wrestling match in the semifinals, ended up getting caught in a weird move, and he ended up losing by getting pinned. And it was just, it was just a heartbreaker. Like you could, I was in the corner coaching him and you could hear the sound of his dreams just shattering, right? And the worst part of it wasn't just that his, his dreams got crushed and he got pinned. The worst part of it was that the Des Moines Register was at his wrestling mat and snapped a photo of him getting pinned and blew it up and put it in the newspaper the next day. So this kid wakes up the next morning not only is he shedding tears because, you know, his dreams got shattered, but he, he looks at the Des Moines Register and there in front of everybody, in front of his parents, in front of his friends, is this big old picture blown up of him getting pinned. So it's like this visible reminder of, oh man, I fell short of my hopes and dreams. And so that night was uh, the high school state wrestling finals. And so for emotional support, what I did for Chase was I, I sat right next to him. So our whole team sat together and I, I was like, man, I got to sit next to this kid just to make sure that he He's doing all right. And so we're sitting there, we're watching the state finals and he, like all of his friends are around him, right? The whole team is around him. So his whole team is just kind of joking around, having fun. They're glad that the wrestling season is over. They're eating cotton candy, stuffing their faces with corn dogs. Can't blame them. They've been cutting weight for three months. They're looking like chipmunks after eating like five corn dogs at state wrestling. You can't blame them but they're all having a blast watching state wrestling finals. And I look over at my wrestler who I'm sitting right next to and he's got his hood up and he's watching the state finals through tears in his eyes. And I remember thinking in that moment, man, I remember thinking in that moment, all of his buddies are having such a blast right now and everybody's celebrating the high school state finals and everybody's so happy to be here and people are in the middle of the mat winning state titles and just cheering. And, and here's this kid with his hood up right next to me just watching it all through tears in his eyes. And I just remember thinking out of all the people, the hundreds of thousands of people in Wells Fargo Arena right now, even though this kid has blurry vision because of the tears in his eyes. Nobody sees life more clearly than this kid right now. Because tears are, tears are a funny thing like that. I bumped into a, a quote from a Harvard professor a couple weeks ago while I was reading a book. 
And it was one of those quotes that when I read it, I didn't even have to underline it because I knew I would never forget it. The Harvard professor had lost his son to a mountain climbing accident. And what he wrote was this. He said, quote, I now see the world through tears. But it could be that with teary eyes, I may see some things that dry eyes cannot. And I wonder if this is you this morning. All of your friends and your coworkers and your neighbors during the Christmas season all have their Christmas sweaters on. They're all drinking egg, eggnog. They're all lighting up their house with a thousand different Christmas lights like Clark Griswold. And you feel like you're just in the stands watching the Advent season through tears. And if this is you, I believe that God has a word for you this morning. John 16, I know that we already read it. Um, I want to get our eyeballs on this again because this is one of those texts that just sounds, it just sounds like way too good to be true. And so I just need to make sure that we know that this is coming from Jesus and, and not just from me. And so here's, here's the context of John 16. What you need to know about John 16 in the context is that Jesus is sitting there with his disciples and he's talking about joy. And you need to know that Jesus, he's talking about joy, not because he's at Adventureland and he's got like a day of roller coasters in front of him. He's not at Chuck E. Cheese's right now with a fun day planned out. And so, of course, he's talking about joy. Jesus is in the middle of what biblical scholars call the upper room discourse. So these are a series of Jesus's last words to his disciples. He's, it's, it's the night before his death. He's about to be betrayed by Judas. The cross is literally hanging over him, and he knows this, and still here he is talking about joy. John 16, verses 16 through 24, Jesus says, a little while, guys, and you will see me no longer. And again a little while, and then you'll see me. And some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while, and you'll not see me. And again a little while, and then you'll see me. And because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean? What does he mean by a little while? We don't know what he's talking about. But Jesus knew. Jesus knew that he wanted, they wanted to ask him. And so he said to them, is this what you're asking yourselves, what I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me and again a little while and then you'll see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and you will lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. It's kind of like this. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. 
In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Okay, so there's Jesus. He's in the upper room with his disciples. He's about to get ratted out by Judas. The cross is hanging over his head. He's in the shadow of impending doom and death. And he's talking about joy. It's like, This is one of those biblical texts where it's like, Jesus, like, read the room, man. Like, this is not an appropriate time to be talking about joy. There's suffering in front of us. And so what's what's going on right here? Why would Jesus choose to be talking about joy in one of his last words to his disciples? What's he doing? Well, I think think one of the mistakes that we make sometimes as Christians is that sometimes we think about joy as being kind of this newfangled New Testament idea, right? Like sometimes if we're honest, we think about the Jesus of the New Testament being like this joyful dude, this plot twist who kind of rolls in in the middle of our Bible and says, okay, now life is about joy and happiness. But sometimes we think about God, the Father in the Old Testament as being this ultimate fun hater, right? But biblically, there's no basis for this. And this is really important for us to see during the season of Advent because Jesus actually isn't pulling this idea of joy out of his back pocket. In fact, when God's people waited for the first Advent of the Messiah, one of the dominant categories that the Old Testament gave God's people for understanding the Messiah is that when he would come, he would bring them joy. This is painfully obvious in Old Testament texts like Isaiah 26. I think we'll have this up on the screen, maybe. If not, I'm just going to read it. In Isaiah 26, um, Isaiah, he, he gives us this prophecy. He says, O Lord, in distress they sought you. They poured out a whispered prayer when your discipline was upon them. Like a pregnant woman who writhes and cries out in her pangs when she is near to giving birth, so were we because of you, O Lord. We were pregnant, we writhed, but we have given birth to the wind. We've accomplished no deliverance in the earth and the inhabitants of the world have not fallen. So here's what Isaiah is saying. Israel was supposed to give birth to the Messiah, but when Israel or when Isaiah was written, it had been all birth pains and no childbirth. So God's people, Israel, knows exactly what it's like to sit in Wells Fargo Arena and watch the Christmas season through tears to watch for the advent of the Messiah with tears in their eyes. In fact, if you're watching the Advent season or the Christmas season with tears in your eyes, that is the holiday spirit. That's how God's people looked at the advent of the Messiah and, and waited. And then watch, watch this. Watch how, watch how Isaiah turns here and prophesies about this coming Messiah. He says, yet your dead shall live. Their bodies will rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. And so when you read Advent texts like Isaiah 26, it actually becomes really clear that joy is not some sort of newfangled New Testament idea that Jesus pulls out of thin air. Joy is actually how the Old Testament prophesied about the coming Messiah, which is why Luke, by the way, in his gospel in the New Testament, calls the gospel good news of great joy. Matthew calls it the gospel of Jesus. Paul calls it the gospel of God. Those aren't three different gospels. 
What's the difference between the gospel of God, the gospel of Jesus, and the gospel of joy? Spelling. It's the same gospel of Jesus. It's the same gospel of the good news of this joyful man. And so this is one of the primary categories that the disciples of Jesus had in mind. And so they, they knew that when Jesus came, when the Messiah came, he would be like joy with flesh on. Like living, breathing, joy with arms and legs. But still, what an odd thing. I think we can all agree for Jesus to be sitting with his disciples, with his death and suffering right around the corner, and he's talking about joy. It's like, Jesus, this is an insensitive time to be talking about joy. You have great suffering and sorrow in front of you. And, and beyond that, Jesus is also omniscient, so he's aware that the disciples he's sitting with have a world of suffering in front of them too. They're going to be persecuted. They're going to experience great loss. They're going to experience great suffering. And ultimately, most of the men who are sitting at that table with Jesus are gonna die painful deaths for the sake of Jesus. And so everything about this situation seems, seems, seems to undermine the possibility of joy. And yet, this is the exact context that Jesus speaks this word into. He looks directly into this context and he says, joy is possible. Not only is it possible, he's going to give them joy that can't be taken away from them. And so what's Jesus doing in this situation, talking about joy in the shadow of the cross? Here's what I think Jesus is doing then, and it may be what Jesus is doing now in sacred mission this morning. What I think Jesus is doing is I think Jesus is injecting his disciples with the spiritual protein of joy so that they can endure whatever difficulties come their way. And Jesus is doing this because Jesus really believes the Bible when the Bible says, the joy of the Lord is my strength. So in the middle of an environment, where it seems like joy would be the last topic on the table, Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, joy is coming. Joy is possible. And I will give you a joy that no one can take from you. But of course, this, this poses a gigantic question that as Christians, we've got to wrap our mind around. And that question is, okay, if, if Jesus promises to give us joy, everlasting joy, joy that nobody can take away from us, then we've got to ask the question, what type of joy does Jesus promise us? Right? When we talk about joy, we have to mean what the Bible means when it talks about joy and not what the world means when it talks about joy. So what type of joy does Jesus promise to give us? I'm going to answer that in three different ways, and I've just prayed that this is super helpful for you. What type of joy does Jesus promise to give us? First, it is not a worldly joy. So sacred mission, God promises to give you joy but it's not worldly joy. And this is very, very clear in the way that Jesus talks about it in our text this morning because what Jesus says, and this is really, really, really important, what Jesus says is, when you see me, then you will receive this joy. And so in other words, this is a joy that doesn't come from your bank account, right? This is a joy that doesn't come from your social media followers. 
This is a joy that doesn't come from your circumstances. This is a joy that can only be described as an otherworldly joy. Actually, when we pursue worldly happiness at the expense of following Jesus, the word that the Bible gives us for that is idolatry because it makes the world look glorious rather than Jesus, and that's a lie. But when we pursue our joy in Christ above all worldly pleasures, what we do is we make Christ look glorious and we also obtain a joy that is undiluted by the world whatsoever. It's unspoiled by worldly pleasures whatsoever. And here's the way that I, here's the way that my weird brain thinks about this. Um, I don't know if this is just a city thing or just a Des Moines thing. So let me ask, does anybody, does anybody, I'm about to embarrass myself. Does anybody in here drink LaCroix? Okay, so we, okay, the Kimberly family, you guys stock your, you, you guys stock your fridge with LaCroix, right? So you guys know what LaCroix is. I never thought I would like LaCroix, ever. And nevertheless, my friends started drinking it, and the next thing I knew, the Dikey family fridge was just stocked with LaCroix. And I was like, babe, can you make sure to grab some more LaCroix when you go? When you go to the, to the grocery store, I was like, I don't know when that happened. I was talking to one of my buddies about my LaCroix obsession, and he made fun of me by calling me a LaCroix boy. I was like, ouch, that sounds like a derogatory term. I'm not sure what you mean by that. I had another buddy who made fun of me, because if you don't know what LaCroix is, let me break the ice. All it is is sparkling water with just a hint of fruit flavoring. So when I was talking to my other friends about how good LaCroix is, I had one buddy, I had to write down this joke because I thought it was so good. He said, dude, LaCroix has about as much flavor as reusing a Gatorade bottle that you didn't wash first. Another friend told me it was like, it was like water, it tasted like water thinking about fruit. That's all the fruit flavoring you had in it. And I, I think that so often what passes for Christianity in the modern world is actually just LaCroixianity. It's religion with like barely a hint of Jesus flavoring to it. We love what the world loves. We enjoy what the world enjoys. We get our meaning from the world and we just add like this little flavor of Jesus on top of it. And the reason why this is tragic is because what we ultimately find joy in in our lives is what ultimately gives your life its flavor. And so when, when you know things about Jesus and when you go to church services that center around Jesus and when you do small groups about Jesus, but you don't really enjoy Jesus, the world can taste that. And what it tastes like to them is LaCroixianity, just flavorlessness with just like a hint of Jesus flavor sparkled in there. And this is different than the joy that Jesus promises us. The joy that Jesus promises us is a joy that's rooted and centered around seeing him. He says, I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice. So seeing Jesus is our joy. Amen? Seeing Jesus is our joy. So by definition, the joy that Jesus gives us cannot be a worldly joy. Second, it's not a worldly joy, but second, it's also not a one-dimensional joy. So sacred mission, God promises to give you joy, but not a one-dimensional joy. Let me unpack this a little bit more. We see this in our text. Jesus says in John 16, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and you will lament. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow 
will turn into joy. And so what I want us to notice is that this is not just a promise to be chipper for all 60, 70, 80 year, whatever the Lord gives you, right? This is a joy that's accompanied by experiences like sorrow and lament and weeping. Actually, notice how the joy that Jesus gives us is not only compatible with weeping and lamenting, but it's actually completed by the sorrow and lament that comes before it. It's actually the sorrow that ends up turning into joy. And we're, we're kind of approaching right now a mystery that's hard to articulate with words, but I think that we have all experienced it in times of deep sorrow and difficulty when our eyes are fixed on Jesus. And the mystery is this. Biblically, joy is an affection for God that is deep and wide enough to actually coexist with sadness, sorrow, contrition, repentance, and lament. Or to say it a different way, joy biblically is so deeply rooted to Jesus that joy has a non-competitive relationship with sadness and sorrow and depression and lamenting. Or to phrase it again in another way, apparently the joy that Jesus is talking about isn't like pie. Like if you give one slice of it to sorrow, then there's fewer slices left over for joy. Or if it is like pie, joy is the crust and all the other human emotional experiences is the topping that the crust is big enough to, and, and wide enough to end up holding. And this is, this is so important that your joy has the capacity to coexist with sorrow because this is what makes biblical Christianity different than what I call happy clappyanity. Right, happy clappyanity is this idea that if I'm gonna be a Christian, and God promises me joy, then I've got to pretend like everything is okay and plaster on a fake smile and just mindlessly clap along with life. That's happy clappity, clappyanity, and that's not Jesus's religion, right? Because Jesus wept. His heart broke when he looked at the brokenness of the world made his heart throw up, and yet he is the most joyful man who ever lived. He was the man of sorrows, and the fullness of joy in Psalm 16. And friends, this is so important because if your church is anything like ours in Des Moines, we have a lot of people who battle depression in Frontier Church. And you need to know that for those of you who battle depression and chronic sorrow, your depression is not the opposite of biblical joy. Like, this is so important because sometimes when people get up, preachers get up to preach about joy, the people who experience anxiety and depression are like, I'm tapping out. This one's not for me. This one is for you. Right? The cross is looming over Jesus' life. He's sitting at a table with his disciples about to get betrayed by a man. And this is the context where he says, Joy is possible. And so for those of you who experience chronic sorrow and depression, you need to know that not only is, is joy not out of bounds for you, but your joy has a particular power to it. I mean, there's been fewer things these last couple of years that has ministered to my soul more than seeing Kent Young one of our elders over at Frontier Church in his 60, battling cancer and still on Sunday mornings raising his hands in worship and delighting himself in the Lord. You look at that and you think, I want that man's Jesus. So if you are in the midst of sorrow and pain and tears, the joy that Jesus has given you has a particular power 
to minister to the world. It's the type of joy that when people experience it, it feels otherworldly, right? It has, it has the ability to not be ruined by circumstances and sorrow and, and sadness. It has the ability to be intermingled with other emotions like sorrow. And actually, what I think it does is, um, if you have an iPhone, here's what suffering and sadness do for the Christian. If you have an iPhone, one of the settings that you can use to take a picture of somebody is called portrait mode. Do you guys know what portrait mode is? Okay, portrait mode is this amazing mode on your iPhone where I remember the first time I took a picture with portrait mode, I took it and I was like, oh, wow, I'm a photographer. It's like, no, Cole, that's just a setting. Because what it does is it blurs out everything in the picture besides the person. And so all the background gets blurred out and it makes the person stand forward with like a ton of clarity. And this is precisely the effect that suffering and sadness has for the Christian. You end up getting... When you have tears in your eyes and you still behold Jesus, the tears end up giving you a portrait mode photo of God. It blurs out all of the background. All those background concerns in life, what am I gonna wear today? What, what do people think of me? Do, do people like me? You know, the stuff that usually dominates your life, when suffering happens, all that stuff gets blurred out and God himself stands forth with an otherworldly clarity. This must be kind of what Jesus is talking about when he says, hey, you're gonna experience sorrow, but when you see me, you're gonna see me in portrait mode. So the joy that Jesus promises you is not a one-dimensional joy and it's not happy clappyanity. And third, it's not a circumstantial joy. And we know this because of the promise that Jesus attaches to it. He says, so also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice. And listen to him, no one will take your joy from you. So the joy that Jesus promises you is not one that attaches itself to ever-changing circumstances because circumstances change and apparently your joy doesn't. So if we want a description of what joy Jesus promises us, we might call it unstoppable joy. We might call it invincible joy. We might call it indomitable joy. But notice what Jesus doesn't say, okay? What Jesus doesn't say is that no one will try to take it from you. Everybody's gonna try and take away your joy, Right? I think it's one of the reasons why The Grinch is such an enduring movie. My kids have become obsessed with The Grinch this year. Just obsessed. We, we watch it on, on repeat. And every time I watch it, I'm like, oh my goodness. Christians, man, like somehow through the gospel of Jesus, God has made us citizens of Whoville. Right? No matter what The Grinch does, no matter how many presents he steals from us, he can steal our presents, but he can't steal our joy. Right? This is like the shock that the Grinch has. He, after stealing Christmas, he's, he looks at him, and, and what, the, what the original text says in the original Greek, no, Grinch wasn't written in Greek. Sorry, I'm in biblical scholar mode. It says, all of the who's, the tall and the small, were singing without any presence at all. Wouldn't it be awesome if Collins Maxwell looked at Sacred City that way? All the members of or Sacred Mission, all the members of Sacred Mission, the tall and the small, they sing even when they don't have any presence at all. 
right? This is the joy that Jesus gives us, an indomitable joy, the only joy that cannot be taken from you. He can't take away your joy because the enemy can't take away your Jesus. It's the joy that doesn't come from a store. It's the joy that doesn't come from health. It's the joy that doesn't come from good fortune. It's the joy of knowing Jesus Christ. He is your fullness of joy. He is your pleasures forevermore. He is the joy of the Lord. To know Jesus' joy, to follow Jesus' joy, to see Jesus' joy, to suffer with Jesus is joy. This is who Jesus is. He doesn't want to be known by you as nothing more than a harsh religious taskmaster who you have to obey. He doesn't want to be known by you as nothing more than a religious box to check off because it's the right thing to do. He wants to be your joy. Christ desires to be your fullness of joy because joy is the organizing principle of your life. Whatever is your supreme joy in life dictates your decision making. Joy is the strongest magnetic force in your life. Whatever you enjoy will snatch all of your thoughts and draw in all of your willpower and attract all of your discipline. Whatever you enjoy, you will obey. What you enjoy most is your functional Lord in life. And Jesus wants to be that for you. He wants to be known as your fullness of joy because joy tells the truth about God. When God commands you to rejoice, he's not asking you to do something that he is not willing to do. Right now, God himself rejoices over you because of the gospel of Jesus. Right? Jesus Christ was crucified in your place and he has so sufficient efficiently taken away all your sins and he has so lavishly covered you in all his righteousness that when the father looks at you he can't help but rejoice the gospel is the good news that God is not just tolerating you he's not just putting up with you He's delighting himself in you. He's rejoicing over you. The Bible says he sings over you. The father is like that crazy parent in the crowd of the athletic event cheering for you with embarrassing enthusiasm, right? God is like that crazy fan who's got chest pain on with your name. He's got the foam finger out with your name. He's crazy about you. He loves you. He rejoices over you. And so he wants to be known as your fullness of joy. And he wants to be known as your fullness of joy because joy makes you strong. If Christ is your joy, you will run through a wall for him. You will endure whatever comes your way for him. You will say no to sin for him. You will say yes to obedience to him. It's just not a cute phrase in the Bible when it says the joy of the Lord is my strength. Sometimes we're just like, hey, put that on a coffee mug. What that means is wouldn't it be nice to be happy? That's not what it means. It means that joy in the Lord is strength. Joy is like the soul's protein enjoying Jesus, delighting in Jesus, rejoicing in Jesus is the only way to have the proper nutrients in your spiritual life in order to endure the race of suffering, sorrow, lament that's in front of you between now and glory when you see Jesus at his second advent and you're filled with even more joy. Till then, the only way we're gonna make it there is by delighting ourselves in the God who already delights himself in us. So one more time before I pray, let me just invite you back to Wells Fargo Arena a couple of years ago.
There I am sitting next to one of my athletes who just experienced sorrow and disappointment and his golden life just shattered right in front of him. And while all of Wells Fargo Arena is celebrating around him, there he is with his hood up watching the wrestling with tears in his eyes. I remember looking at him and I remember thinking, Man, I hope he doesn't quit the sport or give up on the sport just because he didn't accomplish his goals. And not only did he not quit the sport, what came next for this kid just made me the proudest coach in the world. Because what happened after the state wrestling finals is that all the wrestlers did what the wrestlers always do after state. To celebrate the year after cutting weight for three months, they all jumped into a car, they jumped into a couple vans, and they all drove to Hy-Vee to eat way too much Hy-Vee Chinese food. Any amount of high V Chinese food is way too much, right? They call it high chai, high chai night, right? They come back looking like chipmunks, just they went from having sucked in cheeks for the last three months to just looking like chipmunks, just stuffing their face with chocolate milk and way too much orange chicken to celebrate the season. So after the state finals, my wrestlers, they all went together. They jumped in their cars, filled the, filled the vans, ended up driving over to high V to, to pig out on high V Chinese food. All of my wrestlers, besides... One, the wrestler with his hood up, watching the sport through tears in his eyes. What he did is he went home after the state finals and he got home around 11 o'clock that night. And the only reason I know the rest of this story is because I'm good friends with his parents and they filled me in. He got home at 11 p.m. that night and sat on his couch with his hood up quiet. And then... When the clock struck midnight, he walked downstairs to his basement. He laced up his wrestling shoes and he started practicing for the next season at midnight. Not only had this disappointment, sorrow, sadness, not broken his love for the sport, it increased his hunger in sport. I can't help but read the book of Romans when it says that God works together all things for our good and think this is the way that God uses sorrow in our life and disappointment in our life and sadness in our life. Suffering comes our way not because God doesn't want to have. God puts sorrow and suffering into our lives not because God wants to take away our joy but because he wants to singularly root it in himself. So not only when sorrow comes your way, will it not take away your joy, it will ultimately serve to make you hungrier for God, to make you long for him more, and to make you ache for him more. Because we will experience suffering. You will experience loss. You will experience lament and sorrow beyond what you think you're willing to endure. So my prayer is that we're the type of Christians who learn to behold God through tears. To rejoice in Jesus even when tears fill our eyes. I actually think that it's the eyeballs that haven't been blurred by suffering that sometimes are most blind to the reality of God. 
So my prayer for Sacred Mission is that in the midnight of the soul, this Christmas and Advent season, we're the type of Christians who while the whole world is out stuffing their face on the world and high chai, we're the type of Christians who walk down into the basement in the dark night of the soul, lace up our wrestling shoes, and continue to wrestle with the Lord for joy. Don't let the world take your joy away from you. Joy is always possible. Always. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, you make known to us the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And no I don't think any church leader has, has taught me this, that it's possible to rejoice in Jesus maybe more clearly than Tim Kimberly has taught me this in this past season of life. A couple months ago, while I was in this gym, I heard the gospel spoken and preached in a way that has just forever changed me. I went home that day thinking, I have never experienced God's speaking so clearly to me as he did today. And so, Lord, I pray that we would be the type of people who, when Satan takes a swing at us, we swing back with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That we would be the type of people who, even in the midst of brokenness, despair, or just difficult Christmas seasons, we're the type of people who still rejoice in Jesus with a joy that is not worldly, not one-dimensional, and not circumstantial, but a joy that all of Collins looks at and says, wow, all the members of Sacred Mission, the tall and the small, they sing about Jesus even with no presence at all. So this is your promise to us, and I pray that we would fix our eyes on it. One day we will see you, and when we see you, you will give us joy. And that is the joy that no one can take from us. So it's in the precious name of Jesus we ask for all these things. Amen. Uh, churches, we transition into a time of communion. Um, I want you to know that the, that the wine and, and the bread is a manifestation of Jesus rejoicing over you. He invites you to his table because his body was crucified in your place and his blood was given to clothe you. And so you need to know that even when you are unable to rejoice, God himself still rejoices over you and this is evidence of that. And so a couple, a couple things before we take communion together. The first is that at Sacred Mission, we, we like to do this as a family. So whenever you have done business with the Lord, the table is set for you. But when you grab the elements, just wait patiently for us when you go back to your seat because we like to take communion together as one family who has one Jesus and believes in, in one gospel. And the other thing is this. This is open to everybody who follows Jesus. If you're not a follower of Jesus, now is the time to come to Jesus, not communion. Come to Jesus. But if you follow Jesus, the table is set for you. This could be your first morning at Sacred Mission. This could be your third morning at Sacred Mission. Like my wife and I, this can be your last morning at Sacred Mission. If you follow Jesus, this celebration is for you. So let me pray, and then we'll turn it over. Heavenly Father, 
because of the unchanging Jesus Christ. Joy is always possible. Now, today, tomorrow, until glory. Joy is possible.